0: If we open up to Matthew chapter 8 this afternoon, I think a couple of weeks back, we had finished out Matthew chapter 7, then we came to Matthew chapter 8, briefly discussing, I think we got through the first two healings. We're going to go back and revisit those for a minute and then get the last two to hopefully uh, round out the entire teaching here in this section of chapter 8. But you have in Matthew chapter 8, the tra- what we call the transition. You have the next step, okay? So we went and exhaustively, I think, probably not as exhaustive as we could have been, uh, but we did pretty fairly exhaustively uh, go through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 and try to just give us the foundation. Where did Christ set out, start with his ministry, and what did he say, and then what are we doing with it? I think that in all times, especially with everything that's going on around us with uh, the heated contentiousness that's going on um, where we have people who are, I mean I can't think of any better example of the contrary to what we have been preaching in the last three, you know four or five months, um, I guess going all the way back to January as we started this, this Matthew Matthew chapter. Four years. Yeah, but, but in the last as we've been going through this series and looking at this Matthew, teaching you know i mean to to then have um you know people just outright viciously um berating and condemning and pushing this idea that uh it's it's all white or nothing is just you know there's there's nothing more contrary to to what we've been preaching um nothing more contrary to the idea of loving your enemies um so i mean the um anyway it's just it's one of those things that as you look around and you see that and then the people's views of um of immigrants and other things it's just it's just again it's one of those things that of all the times that you need the gospel to shine forth this is it okay um to stand in contrast to this to these uh ignorant ideas is Um, Is is very important for us And so um, as we're looking at this And we're talking about now putting it into action This is where we as the church And as believers in Jesus Christ We come out and say this is actually what Christ taught Um, Because again as we have talked The whole reason why we wanted to emphasize this so much Is because there's this misconception for us Like there's believers As believers we have this problem of you know, are we living out what Christ said to do? But also, we were talking about we have to fight against this idea that the world has about us, okay? And what Christians actually believe and teach. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's examples of like what's happened in the last couple of weeks where you have people trying to blend their message with what Christ taught. And say they're Christians, but then they're saying these other things that are so contrary to what Christ taught. Then we we have to stand as the examples, going, no, that's that's not what Christ taught. Yeah. Um, that's not how Christ acts. Um, Christ condemned this. He condemned the bigoted idea, or he condemned the hatred of another group of people. He, I mean, he blew the doors wide open on that. I mean, in Galatians we have. I mean, he literally, as it says, he tore down that middle wall of partition that divided Jews and Gentiles. He blew it apart. He tore it down, said it's no longer there. And of course, that feeds out and spreads out into all people groups. We believe in, in, in a choosing God who chose a people out of every race and every people and every kindred and every tribe on the face of the earth. So, I mean, we stand in stark opposition to those kind of things. And so we have to make sure that we are portraying that because we are christ's representatives we are the light of the world okay and so christ does this as he steps off the mountain you see here in chapter eight starting in the first verse he says when he was come down from the mountain okay he had been up there preaching now he's walking down to start putting it into action great multitudes followed him and behold there came a leper and worshiped him saying lord if thou wilt thou canst make me clean and Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediate, immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. As we go through this section of scripture, what we're going to see, and I'm going to read down through some of the rest of it here in a minute, but what you see is there's four healings here, okay? Four healings that we're going to see, the healing of the leper, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and the healing of the multitudes. Okay? Those are the four healings that you see. Here we read about him healing the leper. Um, As he goes through, he says um, down in in verse 5, he says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered... Sit and be quiet. Sit and be quiet. Not another word. Hush. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Hush. Now. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth. And to another man, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, and no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self same hour. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them." When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So you have four separate healings here. And I don't think they're inconsequential. I don't think they're just ad hoc thrown in. I think they're there for a purpose. They're there to exemplify and to draw us into four different kind of areas where Christ is showing his healing powers, okay? Now, this is when we see this, and we see him first healing this leper. You know, leprosy was something, as we talked about before, there's a long time history with leprosy, okay? Especially in the Bible, a, a contractable disease that is incurable. There is no cure for this leprosy. There is not a drugstore. You can't run them by the CVS. There's not something that you can do to fix it. Okay, So here, when you got leprosy in the Old Testament and it, or in the Bible, in the Old Testament times and in biblical times, it didn't matter who you were. You could contract it. Okay? It was indiscriminate, and it was incurable. And I think that was part of the issue, is that there was no way for you to get away from it. So it could get you, okay, and you were stuck with it. And this was a, like, soul-shaming disease, okay? Number one, because it was so visible. I mean, your, your limbs literally, like, rot off. That's how beautiful this is. Face and everything, I mean, you would literally just rot to death. Awful disease. Leprosy is still in existence today, okay? It's an awful disease, And it was always viewed as a type of sin, okay, and how sin affects our lives. Because it was something that's contracted, it's something that's incurable, okay, and it affects everyone, all right? So that's where this is kind of a type of that, and Christ is here healing this leper, and I don't think it is inconsequential. He is the first healed person that he records here, okay? Number one, there's interesting things to grab out of this. He touched this man, okay? That was a big no-no. You didn't touch the lepers. Lepers were unclean. They had to walk through the city in the robes of white and shout unclean if they came near. They had to camp out outside of of the camp. They couldn't be in the city. They weren't allowed in except for very rare occasions. I mean, these people were ostracized, kicked out. Don't touch. Stay away from them. The nastiest, dirtiest people in the world, and you weren't supposed to mess with them. Okay? Jesus went and touched them. Okay? Jesus went... And touched him. Let that sink in. When we talk about our sins. and we talk about how dirty we are. And how messed up we are. And how bad we are. And we think there's nobody who can touch us. and, And we are just outside of society. And that we're outside of God's kingdom. And that there's just no way that God could ever be merciful or compassionate or loving unto us. I'm just too far gone. Just remember Jesus just touched this leper. Had no problem doing it either. He didn't say, oh, you got some, I mean, look, I come from the hospital setting. When I walk in a room, I'm like, gloves on. I don't want to touch you, okay? I don't want to touch you or you're nasty, whatever. I'm going to put my gloves on, okay? That's just, that's personal protective stuff that we're just ingrained in us in nursing school. You don't touch things because you touch them. It gets on you. You carry them to somebody else. You got infection control issues. You put your gloves on, okay? Jesus was no gloves. He wasn't complaining about it. He walked up, laid his hand on the man and said, I will be whole. Also notice, though, what is what is embodied in this guy is his faith, okay? Right. He did not go to Bible college. He did not grow up in the, uh, even in the madrashas, which was the teaching, the schools, the Hebrew schools. He wouldn't have been allowed to grow up in that. He wouldn't have been a part of that. Why? Because he's a leper. He would have been out. He didn't know this was Jesus, the Messiah, the Lord of all, because he had heard his dissertation or he had been, I mean... He by faith knew you are the Messiah. He by faith knew you are the Savior. By faith I knew you could heal me. And he says, I know you can if you just will. Okay? You grab hold of that because there is so many occurrences where people deny that Jesus is the Christ. And they have had all the teaching that should have turned them otherwise. You have Pharisees who keep the law to a jot and to the tittle and could understand and know everything about everything with the law and they practice it perfectly. As Paul said about himself, as pertaining to the righteousness found within the law, I was blameless. And I don't think that is an over-exaggeration. The Pharisees, that's what they did. But what was wrong with the majority of the Pharisees was not what they did, it was their heart. Oh man, they were great religious people. But their hearts were wicked and evil. And so when you see them encountering Christ, they are by all means deny that he was anything. What good thing could come out of Nazareth? That's not what one of them said, but that is the idea. What, What good thing could come out of Nazareth? Who could this man be? He could never be the Messiah. He's just the carpenter's son. He must be doing works by the power of the devil, not by the power of God. This man had faith. I know you can Maybe I don't know anything else about you. I don't know your lineage. I don't know where you came from. I don't know if you've met all the qualifications yet of the Messiah, if you've rode in on the donkey, if you've done all these things. But I know that you can heal me if you will. And Jesus said, Amen, I will. Boom, you're done. Go sit with Grant. There's another area in Luke chapter 17 where there was a healing of lepers too. Again, showing the faith of some versus some who were just ready to get a free handout. Luke chapter 17, 12 through 19, it says, And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And, as, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priest. And it came pa- to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them... When he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, worshiping him. Oh, and by the way, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole there was something more to it than the physical healing that went on here and there was something about the faith that was expressed in one and not the other nine and there's something even more fantastic about it because that one was a samaritan indicating that probably the other nine were jews and the jews who had been trained up and raised up and known all about it they get healed they all get healed at the same time walking away there's one who had a heart by faith who said, no, i got to go back. i got to go see my Savior. i got to go talk to him. i got to go give glory to God for what he has done for me. And when he does that, Jesus says, thy faith has made thee whole. We look at the story of Abraham we've been talking about, how it was imputed unto him to, for righteousness when he believed God. It's a beautiful thing. And as he came into the, to Capernaum, which again, we're up in the northern area of Israel. We're up around the Sea of Galilee. That's kind of where we're sitting now. We've been talking about this some on Wednesday nights. There was a centurion, which was a Gentile Roman soldier, leader, captain of a guard. And saying, Lord, I have a servant. He lies sick at home. And Jesus says, I'll come. I'll come heal him. Okay? Again, you know Jesus. Jesus knows all about this. Jesus is not shocked by this. Jesus knows exactly what this man's going to say. He knows what's coming next, but still he says, No, I'll come. Show me the way. I'll come heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. How did this man know he was his Lord? How did this man know he was his Lord? He's not a Jew. Now, in another place in Luke, they will talk about this man and the servants that go, and they relay it that there were servants of this man who went to go get Christ. But when they do, they talk about this centurion, they say, He is a great man. He has helped out the Jews in their cause. Okay? But he's not a Jew. He doesn't know the prophecies. He hasn't been reading Isaiah. He has been studying through Malachi or Haggai or one of them and going, oh, well, I mean, he came from Nazareth and, I mean, and, and of, of little Bethany and all this stuff. And here, I mean, he's not tying all that together. But he comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, I know that you can do this. And Lord, I know that I am unworthy to have you under my roof. What always shocks me about that and what always kind of causes me to pause is that we have so many people who will not come and profess their belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and be baptized and follow after him sitting in church all the time. I'm like this centurion who has nothing knows nothing about the Jewish law and prophecies sees his savior and there's nothing stopping him from recognizing that lord i know who you are you are my lord and i'm not worthy that you would come under my roof what a profound humility in that he didn't have the Hebrew law, he didn't have the tradition, he didn't have all the other rigmarole that gets put in there. Simply knew Jesus, and number two, recognize who he was and his authority. No questions, no doubting, no nothing. Absolutely understood without a shadow of a doubt. You are the Lord, and I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And I recognize that you have authority over all things because he goes on to make the comparison saying, "Hey, look, I'm a centurion, I am a I'm a captain of the guard. I know." And this is what I always thought was neat about this is, you know, we talk about natural examples speaking to the things of God, okay? This is talked about in Romans when he talks about I mean, anyone should be able to look out and see the stars and the sky and all these things and by the natural things of the world should be able to comprehend that there is a creator, okay? And that's why he says, "Man, you're without excuse." There is no excuse. You cannot plead ignorance. When it comes to a judgment seat time, there is no th- nothing that you can come up and say, well, I just didn't know. I didn't know you existed. didn't know you were there. Nobody ever told me. He says, no, because I put it in the stars that you should be able to see and recognize there was a creator. Now, why did you not do that? Because you're wicked and you're rebellious and you didn't want to ascend to that kind of knowledge, okay? But here he's talking to this guy. This guy uses a natural example. He says, I'm a guard, captain. I know I have men. I'm an authority. They recognize my authority. And when I tell them to do something, they do it. I'm recognizing you as Lord and King over the universe. This guy has a eschatology, soteriology that he has just blown up into the most profound (laughs) theological concepts. He has just spoken of omnipotence and omnipresence and omniscient all in this one statement. Okay? Because he says, "I know you are Lord. I recognize you as king. I recognize you as having the authority and not just authority in the natural sense like I have, but authority over all of creation." You say, well, how do I get all that out of those sections of Scripture? Because he uses the natural example and says, I know that if I tell my servant, my um, under, um, uh, well, I'm trying to think of the name, my, uh, <laughs> the people who are under me, okay, um, the, uh, the soldiers who are underneath me, okay, I tell those people to do something and they do it because they know I have the authority to command them to do that. He says, I know that exists in my realm, therefore in your realm... I know that you can just say the word and my servant will be healed because obviously you have that kind of authority. I mean, now that's pretty doggone crazy to imagine that this guy who has not been steeped in what we would think would be necessary. Okay? Okay. People have it. You say something like omnipotence or omnipresence, and we are like, "Who?" Huh? You know, like what does that mean? And you had to kind of explain it. And that's why it's sometimes important for us to make sure that we're not using Greek words to kind of uh, fill in all of our. I mean, you got to explain some stuff sometimes, okay? Um, that's not to be high-minded and you use them like everybody should know them. And if you don't, well, look at you. You know, you, you need to stay in church a little longer, and you'll figure it. No, I mean, we got to be explaining things in a way that is comprehensible. But this guy here doesn't have that. Okay? He wasn't brought up in that. And yet, here, you see him claiming the power that God has over the entire created order. He recognized that Jesus had the power to manipulate cells in this guy without ever being around him or touching him, no witch, doctor, holy moly, whatever thing. He could just speak it because he recognized that he had the power over every single molecule in that man's body because he created him. He says, I know you have the authority to do this. So he did. And he says, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Making a very valid point. This man did not have the teachings. He did not have the traditions. He did not have the normal rigmarole to get him to where he was. He just knew by faith that God was God and he had the power. And he knew that if God wanted to do it, he could. And God said, absolutely. And he says, I have not found so great a faith in Israel speaks to the fact that sometimes we come up in the church and we come up under the teaching and we think that we just have it all. We think because we know things, because we have this doctrinal thing figured out and that we know how we can make good arguments about whether it's by predestination or free will or all this stuff and we can argue about all these things that somehow that means we have got it, but we fail in this right here. We don't believe God. We don't believe that he has the power. We don't believe that he controls every single molecule in our body. We don't believe that he is in control. And we don't believe that he is our Lord. And we don't have the humbleness and humility to believe, I'm not worthy of you to come under my roof. This man's got all of that. And that's why he looks out at Israel. He says, I have not seen this in Israel. And of all places, you would expect Israel to see this. Israel is the ones that got to see all the really cool, crazy stuff. They got to see like manna from heaven and oceans turned back. And I mean, uh, sun standing still and people coming back from the dead. And I mean, they had all sorts of crazy, amazing, miraculous history. And Lord knows they were all about their history. And yet of all people, they should have been the ones to be like, hey, dude, I, you don't even just go ask him. He doesn't even have to come to your house. This guy could do it, and he he could do do it from, I mean, he has all power. I've seen him flip an ocean back on its end. I've seen him come down and melt mountains. I've seen him send fiery chariots of angels to come down and wipe out armies without everybody ever knowing. I mean, I've seen some stuff, okay? I've seen him turn water into wine. This guy turned water into wine. I've seen him do things. I've seen his power, I've seen his glory, I've seen his might. But instead you have them going, well, you know, I'm just not really sure about him. You know, I'm not really sure about this Jesus guy. You know, he comes in. He kind of tells us that everything we're doing is wrong. That, you know, he's talking about the law and saying he's going to fulfill it. But then he's saying we got to, like, love our enemies. I mean, that just seems a little bit contrary. And, I mean, where is my room to be hateful and mean and bigoted? And all these, things? I mean, I should be able to do that. And here you are saying that I can't. I mean, this just can't be the Messiah because he's not coming and telling me things I want to hear. He's not coming and just... Tickling my ears and making me feel good about myself. He hasn't come and told me that I am a rare butterfly that needs all the attention in the world. And that I deserve things. You know, I always think about the guy, uh, and I always forget his name, but I think it's not Kevin Smiley. But uh, it's off of Saturday Night Live that, that uh, that you are... You were, whatever, you were beautiful, you were good, and doggone it, people like you. You know, this like self-affirming guy, and you can go YouTube because it's hilarious. But, anyway, that's what, this, that's what we expect. Okay, that's what these people expected. Oh, here we go. If he's the Messiah, he's going to come in, Israel's going to be back on top, I'm going to be in my position of power again, and I'm going to have it affirmed. We're going to have this great awesome nationalistic you know ethnocentric thing come back and we're going to be established and we're going to be able to strut around and say yep look we are israel again and he came in and said no you know and in fact i'm getting gentiles in here we're going to show how you're just one of many oh well i don't really like that it's not what i wanted to hear I wanted flaming chariots and swords, and I wanted the Romans to die and I wanted all these things to go out and I wanted our country back and I wanted our nation back and I wanted our you know I wanted our temple on the hill and I wanted all these things and I, more importantly, I wanted the status, the fame, the wealth, and the glory but I don't want you, Jesus, this meek, humble guy coming in and healing all these people, taking care of Gentiles, taking care of Samaritans. No, we don't need you. But here you have the example of the centurion who just blows our mind. Okay? We don't think it's that special or applicable probably to us today because we're so far removed from this. We're so down the road. Jesus has been working in places all over the world, in Africa, Asia, Middle East, all these places. There's all this diversity and all these things. But at this point in time, in this context, to have a centurion soldier held up where Jesus goes, You see this guy? This is the example of faith. Well, what about Abraham? No, no. Centurion. The Gentile soldier. I didn't hold, I didn't go over here and like resurrect Abraham's bones and hold him up here. This is the guy that you should be looking at and going, hey, he, he believed me. He trusted me. He acknowledges my power. I mean, that would be a big slap in the face. And even more than that, he tells them they, that, that uh, about those who were in Israel. He says, that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We mentioned this Wednesday night. This is where Christ is basically saying, there's a bunch of you Jews... Who think you're going to get in just because you're saying, oh, well, I'm a Jew and this is what I do and this is where I've been a part of and this is my lineage and I deserve a place at the table. And Jesus is going to go, no, I'm going to tell you there's going to be people coming from the east and the west. That's meaning people who are not Jews like the centurion. Who are going to come and sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. With those patriarchs that you go back to and say, this is why I'm getting to heaven. Because I can pass my name off all the way down and show you how I'm in the lineage of Abraham. He's going to say, there's going to be people who are in the lineage of Abraham from the east and the west. By faith, as he talks about in Galatians. Who are going to come into the kingdom and sit out at the table. And then there's going to be children who are of, quote, unquote, the kingdom of Israel who think they're in, who are going to very be much kicked out. And there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're saying, oh, well, we expected all this. We thought this was going to come to us. As we talked about earlier where in chapter 7 where they talk about, you know, haven't we done all these great things in your name? Haven't we prophesied and healed and done all these things? And he says, I never knew you. He says, so there's going to be People who you don't expect to be there, who are going to be there. That's what I was listening to a to a uh, uh, a preacher on the way back from uh, Franklin, Tennessee, uh, Friday and Saturday. And we've talked about this too. About you know, if you really are a true blood, just racist person, okay. Or if you don't like that's a, the other way we use this is if you are a person who does not like singing. Okay, people are like I don't like to sing. All right, that's why I don't sing in church because I don't like singing. You know, we'll always say, well, you're going to hate heaven, okay? Because that's all we're doing, all right? Um, you know, and, and here's the beautiful thing about heaven. You know, people talk about, I mean, one of the beautiful things about heaven, okay? We could probably go on and on a little bit. But, you know, what always cracks me up is when people are talking about songs and worship songs and things like that and people sometimes will kind of poo-poo on the uh the modern day songs where they're like oh they're just so, too simplistic you know they're not these complex poetical whatevers you know it doesn't use words in there like death dew on your brow or vernal trees or things like that and they say well i mean if it's just not this huge dense deep poetical masterpiece then it's just it doesn't it just doesn't stand up and I'm always like, well, I think, like, the greatest hymn ever sung is going on right now in heaven. And all they're doing is saying, holy, holy, holy. Three words on repeat. So it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah, three Not words. Enough. Well, yeah. They're saying one word three times on repeat, okay? Because it's three, they go together, all right? Let's digress off the mathematics, okay? <laughs> But here's where you get this idea with if you don't like singing down here, you're going to hate heaven because that's all we're going to do. Okay? If you don't like other racial groups down here, if you think it's whites only, blacks only, reds only, it's whatever. If that's just your thing, that you think that you are the top dog because of the color of your skin and that they are the only people, then I'm going to tell you you're going to hate heaven too. Because yep. it's going to be pretty diverse up there. So that's where he's telling these Jews, he's like, guys, you think it's just y'all. And I'm telling you, there's going to be some of y'all that are on the outside looking in. And there's going to be a whole lot of other people sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would have never expected to be there. So instead he says, look at this man. This is the example of faith. This is who you should be like. You go on down into the Peter's mother-in-law. And this is also, I mean, hey. If you ever wanted to know, Peter obviously was married. you got to be married to have a mother-in-law. Paul never expresses that he was married. And, in fact, in Corinthians, he says, hey, you know, there is kind of benefits to being single. Um, he's obviously not countermanding the things of God where God says, good and very good, not good man be alone, woman's awesome, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, I kind of jokingly said yesterday at the marriage that we did, uh, you know, that is a poetic phrase, okay, Adam breaks out into a song when his wife is brought to him. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's a song. Okay. He was so excited. He broke out into song. Okay. But Paul's not undoing that. Paul is just saying, hey, there are benefits to being single. And God gives singleness, singleness to some people. Okay. And says, this is your gift. And he does it as a way of saying, I want you devoted to my service and that family and wives and children and all those things, as we all know. And as Brother Todd made mention of this uh, this afternoon, you know, it comes with complications, problems and issues sometimes. And so he says, there's some people I have called out to be devoted 100 percent to serving me. And so here, though, we see Peter married and his mother in law is sick. I don't know if Peter was just trying to get extra bonus points. okay? Mm -hmm. There's a way in which you could butter up and take care of your mother-in-law. Maybe that's going to secure you something in the future. I'm not saying that I have anything to do that, even though I did give my mother-in-law three children before anybody else did. Um, You know, I'm just saying, whatever. But I'm not going to say I'm first or the greatest. I didn't use those words. You can, but I didn't use those words. But here he has a mother-in-law who's sick with a fever. Now, I have had three kids in the last three weeks have fevers like every day, okay? And if they had had other things associated with them, I probably would be a little bit more concerned. But otherwise, it's I've got a headache, I got a fever. Well, knock it out with some I'll go to bed, we're good, okay? Fevers don't usually rank on the hierarchy of "Oh my gosh, we have a critical problem here," all right? Unless we're hundred, three 104 having seizures, okay? But I mean, fevers are just sometimes just fevers. That's it. You can have a fever from having teeth. You can have a fever from having a stomach bug. You can have a fever because you want to get out of school. I don't know what it is. But you can have fevers sometimes. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. You've had a leper. You've had a palsy, tormented, viciously person. And now you've got his mother-in-law who has a fever. Now, I'm not throwing off and saying that her fever was some kind of inconsequential thing. I would say, though, probably on the scale of one to ten of critical life-threatening diseases at this point and of what we have just addressed, his mother-in-law's fever is going to be close to the bottom in a good way, though. Christ comes into this house and heals this woman's fever, and she gets up immediately and starts helping and doing stuff. There's about three or four different things you can grab out of that. One of them, number one, is that this healing is instantaneous. There are sometimes when he does things like spit in clay and rub it on eyes, and it you know, and it, it manifests in different ways. Here he just walks in there and grabs her up, and boom, she's healed. And here we go. She's not only healed instantly; she's like 100% recovered. She feels great. Yeah. She's up. She's running around. She's cooking dinner. She's taking care of these people in her house. Awesome woman. Okay, that's just. Very awesome lady, Peter's mother-in-law, all right? Uh, it's, it's very much reminiscent of a lot of women that I know that it's like, you know what, I'm back at it, let's go, we got stuff to do, let's take care of it, okay? Don't have time to be sick. I bet you've all heard of that before. But here you go, she's healed instantaneously, 100% healed, all right? And she gets up and she starts helping. The other thing, though, that I think is important is this zeroes down to a very intimate healing. This is Peter, his apostle's mother-in-law. He has gone into her house. He has gone to her bedside. He has raised her up. Very, very intimate. This isn't the long-distance phone-a-friend healing for the centurion. This isn't the leper. This isn't... I mean, he is intimately involved with this woman's healing. It also shows, in my opinion... Okay, we'll just throw that out there. In my opinion... As we've talked about the scale of 1 to 10, okay, leprosy, fever, we're going to say that fever is a little bit less life-threatening at this point, okay? But what you gain from this too is that there's nothing too trivial for Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at this and say, look, I got bigger things to do. I'm sorry, I don't have time to come in there, Peter, to hear your mother-in-law. That's kind of a sidestep off of our path. i got to get down here to Capernaum. i got stuff to do, man. I've only got a limited time here. I've got a lot of things i got to accomplish while I'm here. No, he takes the time to walk off down to Peter's house, go in, and heal this poor woman. And it could have been. It could, she could have had malaria. She could have 105 fever, having seizures on the floor. We don't know, but it shows that Christ is interested there's so many times people will say, "I don't think that my problem is all that big of a deal to trouble God with. It's just a little old thing. It's nothing to worry about. People got bigger problems. People got leprosy and they need healing. People've got palsies, they need healing. You know all this stuff. Christ is involved in every child's life. He cares. He cares about this woman. So much so that it takes time to go over there and heal her. It's just a fever. But he doesn't care what it is. He's still interested in her and goes and heals her. There's nothing too small. There's nothing that God looks at and goes, Hey, I really know that you're really struggling with this tiny little thing. But, you know, I'm trying to like keep the whole universe together. And so maybe you figure it out on your own. He doesn't do that. God cares about you. God cares about me every aspect of it i'll go this step he even cares about birds he says that there's not a bird that falls to the ground that he's not involved with he cares about the hairs of our head he has them numbered again why i don't know and we often joke that some people that would be an easier task than others okay you know Pray for baldness so God doesn't have to, He can wipe that off his slate. Okay, now He doesn't have to worry about your hairs. Maybe He still has them numbered wherever they are in the cosmos, but you know, He cares. That's how intimate He is. So it's important for us not to trivialize things and say, well, these things just aren't important enough. No, God cares about everything about you because you are His purchased possession. The smallest things on the body, he says, are sometimes the most important. And we've joked about this with the appendix. You don't think about your appendix until it swells up and tries to kill you. You don't think about your gallbladder, which is a tiny little thing in your body, until you know it just quits working. You don't think about these things until they become a problem. Speaking of a problem... You better quit. So, speaking of problems, so there's nothing too small, nothing too unimportant for him. Lastly, he makes the healing of the multitudes that we'll close with. And all these people come to him possessed with devils, and he casts out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And it's important because I've said this multiple times, and y'all have heard me say it, that, you know, Jesus didn't have to do this, okay? We've talked about this as he goes through his ministry, and we've said He does do it, and it is a fulfillment of prophecy. But Jesus isn't doing it just because he says, oh, God made that prophecy way back in Isaiah. Now I've got to take care of it. If I don't, then it won't be right. He's doing it because he had all anticipation and expectation to do it. And God knew that he was going to do it because he had already said he was going to do it. So the prophecies were just telling something he already had planned to do. But he didn't have to. Healing our infirmities doesn't save us from sins and get us into heaven. Healing our infirmities was not a necessity to get us in the right physical position so that we could go to heaven. He does this because he is a loving, compassionate person. Because he loves people. And he loved these sick people. And he wanted to heal these sick people. And he wanted to cast out these demons. And he wanted to show his power and his mercy. And so as we kind of close this out, there was these four healings. I kind of labeled them out in this way. Number one is he heals the untouchables, which were the lepers. And these are the things that I talked about last time that we have to be careful that we don't label people as people that we don't want to get involved with. Well, that person who just doesn't look all cleaned up, they got too many tattoos, they look like they've slept in something in their their clothes in somewhat of like five or six weeks, they're dirty, they're not. We just "Ah, get cleaned up, then come to church, we'll be okay with that. The person who's actively on drugs. Well, get yourself cleaned up. We don't want to mess with you right now. You know, I know you're kind of on the life or death thing here. But once you get yourself cleaned up and taken care of, come on in the church. You know, the untouchables—the people in society, homeless, drug abusers, abused people, people like that—that that we are kind of like. Mm, you know, culturally, we just you got to stay a, a good, healthy distance away from those people. That's not what Christ did. Are we Christians? Because if we are, we got to do what Christ did. Second is the unthinkable, and that was the Gentile centurion—the people that we don't think fit into the paradigm that we think should be receiving blessings, or that should be—I mean, people that we look at and then we're like, you know, it's kind of a surprise. I wouldn't expect that. You know, you look like you more fit into a biker gang than you did a church. But here you are, you seem to believe in God, and you're humble, and you're merciful, and you're compassionate. Well, that, that should say something that maybe it's not as important. We don't really care as much about those things as we do about what is presented from the person's heart. This is going to go out into people and people's groups. This is going to get you out of very narrow-minded, uh, maybe racially-oriented situations. This is going to mean there's people probably who are Muslims or who are Iranian or who are Chinese or things like that. People that we don't think because they're not white. They weren't born in the South, you know, because that's where Jesus was born, um, was in the South um, and, you know, grew up in the church here. Uh, You know, we think that somehow we have the corner on the church when we realize the church started in the Middle East. So we've got to be careful that we don't think that all Christians... I mean, that's why the pictures of Jesus as a blue-eyed, blonde-haired, white guy doesn't match with the Bible, okay? So we've got to make sure we're not putting some people in some unthinkable categories and saying that, well, I just don't think they're going to be very receptive to this. The third one was the unimportant, and that was Peter's mother-in-law. highlights the small things. There's nothing too small. There's nothing that's too much of a triviality to us that we can't go help we can't go do okay uh, well you know i'm trying to go over here and cure world's hunger i don't have time to like minister to you um, with your small issue you know read a book there's plenty of self-help books grab something from joel olstein feel good about yourself and then let's move on i got some other things over here i got to take care of there's nothing too small and the last one which isn't very good english but i said the unending okay I had to keep this un thing going on. I couldn't change that. That's part of that, you know, neurotic. Got to keep it going. The multitudes. Okay, the multitudes highlight that Christ's healing, loving, caring ability does not run out. He healed multitudes, it was unending, there's no terminality to it. He doesn't say that you've used up the punch cards on your prayer thing and now you've gotten to the lie, I don't have have any more room for you today. I don't have any more healing. You've run out. You've messed up too many times. I don't have any more forgiveness for you. It's never ending, never runs out. It's never too big. And he never says, I don't have time. You know, there's a beautiful picture in the Bible of Christ saying that I am willing to leave the 99 sheep who were hanging out good in the pasture and go get the one that has gone astray. And he never puts a term limit on that. He never says, I do it once, and then you never go astray again. And he also never says, well, this is your 50th time. I'm done with you, bro. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of going out here. I'm tired of going to the brambles. I'm tired of pulling you out of the thicket. He just gives this picture. I am your savior and your shepherd. And I'm willing to go get you back out of the ditch that you've gotten yourself in again and again and again. And you say, well, how do I know that? Because he tells Peter to forgive someone 70 times 70. Implicating that he doesn't have a term limit on forgiveness. Right. He doesn't say, well, you're done. I'm sorry. Peace out. Goodbye. I've, I've let you go. I, n- I don't care about you anymore. I know I died for you. I know I saved you. I know I gave my blood for you. I know I said you're my temple. You're my purchase with Jesusession. all these things. And I know I said that I'll never leave you or forsake you. But, you know, I'm just... I'm done with you. I've run out. I've run out of patience. I've run out of time. I've run out of ability. I've run out of help. I've run out of power. I've run out. He doesn't run out. It's never ending. He healed multitudes after multitudes after multitudes. Nowhere does it implicate that somehow his power diminished with time. So it's important for us to grab that and understand God has it all. Okay? There's nothing too small, nothing too big. Nothing too untouchable. Nothing outside of these bounds of cultural things that we have put on it. God is a beautiful Savior. And I hope that we reflect that in our lives. That when we talk about the unending, that we quit putting a term limit on how often we're going to forgive somebody. Remember we talked about this with prayer. God said, well, if you don't forgive, I'm not going to forgive (laughs) He doesn't say, oh, after you've met certain criteria... That we won't think that there's anything that's too small for our lives. That we'll always be wanting to help somewhere, somehow, somebody, whatever it is. That we don't distance ourselves or close ourselves in and say there's only certain people I'm willing to help. So I hope these things have been beneficial and we'll continue to look through them and get into kind of the next sections of this. And y'all can always read ahead because you know where I'm going next. May God bless us to think on this.